Gyrus Nation, the Marcus Freeman finally has a winning record as Marcus Freeman gets his first win over a ranked opponent, the 16th-ranked BYU Cougars. We come back from Las, uh, Las Vegas victorious, and Mike has recently traveled from Los Angeles to Minnesota as we are within two weeks of Mike's big day walking down the aisle. So, Mike, now that you're in Minnesota getting ready here on a bye week, if you will, of, of your own go, going into wedding week preparations. How, how are things going? It's good. It's good. It's. Uh, I don't think it's fully hit us yet that we're so close to the wedding. There's so many final preparations that we're making, just things like forms to fill out. I had to go drop off a bunch of items to the wedding photographer today. So so we're getting close. I imagine a couple days out, I mean, Brett, you would know from from your own wedding. I imagine a couple days out, it's going to hit a little bit more. Probably there'll probably be some some uh, wedding day nerves too. But I think yeah, we're. I mean, obviously, like really excited for the wedding and the honeymoon and everything. So and uh, obviously, I'll be out for a couple weeks with this podcast. But I know Brett will will have this show in good. Uh, I know it'll be in good hands with them. But um, but yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's a bit surreal that it's so close. I always felt like the day before my wedding was very similar. You know how coaches, when they talk about like, they freak out, they're nervous, they're trying to control everything, and then the ball kicks off. And after that, things just flow, and they just kind of go. That's what wedding prep was like. Everything's just sort of like, there's something to do, something's wrong, something's this, something's that. And then like, for me, it was the day before the wedding. It was like, okay, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Whatever mistakes are going to happen is going to happen. Whoever's going to poorly execute their jobs are going to poorly execute their jobs. But I've done all the planning I can. The game plan is set. The strategy is set. We've got the lineup. The roster is ready to go. And you just sort of let it fly. So that was, that was the analogy I always used for, for my wedding weekend. It was kind of like a coach up until kickoff, which was for me about 24 hours before the wedding. Yeah. I'm going to demand, I'm going to demand perfect execution. The standard is the standard. So. Uh, I don't think I'm gonna go purple face Brian Kelly if uh, if there's some sloppy execution, but gotta gotta demand excellence. You'll, you'll execute step. the florist and the photographer, Brian Kelly yeah, style. Hey, if, yeah, yeah. You know, if we have a quarterback rotation with the entire team needs to be executed. <laughs> Get them all out of here. <laughs> yeah. So hopefully, hopefully we come out. Everything's humming. I think it will. Like you said, Brett. I mean, we've done all the prep that we could do. And at a certain point, you just kind of have to let it, you know, let it fly, basically. Um, but yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be a great time. All my friends are gonna be in. Um, I, it's actually uh, the UNLV game. That's the weekend of my wedding. I purposely picked a. Uh, I couldn't I couldn't get around the fall wedding weekend, so I I uh, tried to pick a game that, in theory, should be an easier one for the Irish. Now that we obviously lost to Marshall, who knows? But I do think we're looking a little bit more. I like that you're pretending that you had say on when this wedding got set, but. Um, I avoided the Clemson weekend. I definitely, I made, there were certain weekends I was like, this is, this is not a good weekend. And the excuse that I used was, well, hey, the friends who are there, they're going to be very distracted with the other games that are going on. So we don't want that. We want, we want our guests to be nice and focused. So I did actually, I think that was a pretty compelling argument when we were doing the wedding planning. So you know, UNLV weekend, I think that was probably about as good as I could have done short of a bye week. There you go. Well, we're, we're very excited. Ann and I are, are looking forward to getting up there for the wedding and until then we've got another show to take care of here we're going to recap the BYU game we're going to preview Stanford maybe one of the more um lackluster you know kind of ho-hum Stanford games in in recent memory at least anticipation for it and then we're going to close out the show this week talking about the Shamrock series how Notre Dame's performed in it 
other kind of favorite memories we've had of the Shamrock series, but also some brainstorming and, and ideas and look at broader college football history of where else Notre Dame could take a, a neutral site game and, and some options there. So fun show ahead with that. Let's dive into the BYU game. It's good to be back. Uh, you know, what a unique experience and a special environment. Um, it was in Las Vegas for the Shamrock series game. And, and as I told our program, that's what makes us special. And that's what makes this place unique. And so, uh, special shout out to our fans that showed up there and, and uh, that unbelievable stadium. That was really, really cool. And it's obviously even better to come out with a win. Notre Dame wins 28 to 20. Ultimately, BYU had two attempts within one possession and the ball in the fourth quarter. Couldn't get back in. It couldn't tie to the game. And this game felt like such a frustrating win. Notre Dame dominated in so many categories yet just couldn't really pull away, couldn't execute when we really had the opportunity to put points on the board, made a couple of situational mistakes from from a coaching perspective that, that we can get into. But it was such a dominating game if, if you look into the advanced metrics that should really make Notre Dame fans walk away feeling really good now about really back-to-back, statistically dominant performances against good UNC team, 5-1 and one now beat Miami on the road. And, and BYU, that, that's a ranked team and, and very likely will be back ranked again in, in the near future if, if they keep trending in the right direction. So, Mike, let's walk through some of your initial takeaways of this game. Obviously a close game in the points, not so close in some of the other stats. How, how do we get there? Yeah, it's interesting. So my reaction watching this game was it felt like a game where we could have blown them out. I feel like at one point we were up, what was it, it was 25 to, to 6. We were up 19 points. Uh, and at that point, I, I actually thought we were going to run away with the game. And then, of course, BYU, they went on a little bit of a run and made it a little close. But when you're looking at the advanced stats, it's exactly what you said, Brett. Basically, it shows that in all all the key categories, we were pretty much dominating BYU. And that matches up with what I saw on the field. We controlled the time of possession. I don't want to harp on time of possession too much because – when you look at things like efficiency, something like that doesn't really matter as much. But we did. We ran 75 plays to their 46, 24 first downs to their 13. More importantly, 496 yards to their 280. So really from a yardage, from a time of possession, from first down standpoint, we we dominate that. And then if you look at the postgame win expectancy, which is kind of the headline advanced stat, uh, our postgame win expectancy was, was 97%. So that just shows you that we really did dominate this game, even though the final score shows a much closer, uh, closer game than all these numbers would imply. Um, I think another key, key aspect to mention here is that from a turnover standpoint, that wasn't really a big factor. We had one pick that, uh, pine through, which was kind of fluky. And then actually the first play, of the, the first play of the game from, for BYU, we actually got an interception. So those kind of traded off. So that didn't really have any impact. But I, I think really the fact that, uh, BYU had the ball trailing by five points and eight points in the fourth quarter when we were just surely dominating so much. To, to me, that to me that was very shocking. And, and the first point on how that actually happened was so I think Brett, we talked about this uh, ad nauseum in our group text, and I had the same reaction when when I was watching it live. And that was when we went for two to go up. So what was that? I'm trying to remember. Was that in the it was second eighteen quarter? to six in the second quarter? We scored a touchdown and made the decision to go for two to go up fourteen points. Uh, but basically try to get, you know, to a full two touchdown lead. But again, in the second quarter. Yeah. And that's right. And so generally the way I think about these things is, so if you have a philosophy where you have a high powered offense and the math just says you should go for two every time, 
then that's great. Then do that. But that's not, that's not what our strategy is. Our strategy is when we get a touchdown, we're going to kick the extra point. And generally you don't want to play the points game because you don't really know where the dust is going to settle near the end of the game. So if you go for two and you don't get it, and then you kind of get into the situation that we had gotten into where we were up eight points near the end of the game. Now we're looking back and we're thinking, oh, okay, shoot, we probably should have kicked that extra point because then we would have been up two possessions instead of one. And that's that's exactly what happened here. So I think for us, we made the mistake of deviating from our philosophy, chasing points when it was at a point in the game where we didn't really know what was going to happen. So I think I think that was a key mistake. And hopefully that's something that Freeman learns from. I do think, I will say I'm getting the sense from uh, Coach Freeman that we're seeing some of these first year head coach mistakes, but it does seem like he's, he's learning from them. It seems like he's adapting a bit each to week. So hopefully this is something that, uh, you know, he can, he can look at this game and, and, uh, know going forward that even if it would be nice to get two points here, let's just stick with our philosophy. And then at the end of the game, when, if, if we're down eight points or if there's a situation where we need to go for two, then we can do it then. Let's do it when we actually know for sure if we have to do it. Let's not do it earlier in the game if it doesn't fit our strategy. Yeah, and where, where that really comes, I mean, most statisticians that, that track this stuff, Brad Kelly often talked about the math person he had the, on the sideline, never, ever, ever chase points until the fourth quarter, ever. Because if you, you know, go for two and don't get it, but someone kicks a field goal or you kick a field goal or someone gets, who, who knows what happens in the course of the game where the numbers change. And lo and behold, if we would have taken that extra point, we would have had a nine-point lead in the fourth quarter. That, that, that's the really key thing here. We had an eight-point lead, and BYU then got a second shot at trying to tie or take the lead in the fourth quarter. If we're up by nine, that, it's a two-possession game. Like That completely changes the odds of this game in the fourth quarter. And that decision in the second quarter, um, you don't know if it really even helps you that much. Like the, At the end of the game, the difference between nine points and ten points doesn't matter. It's two possessions. The difference between eight points and nine points is everything. So early in the game, chasing points, just a real rookie coaching mistake. The flip side of that is we continue to play really clean football. It's a disciplined team. They show up. They're ready to go. You can say what you want about execution and game plan and play calling, but we only had one penalty in this game. Um, on the season, we're actually 15th in the country in fewest uh, penalties per game at, at just a little over four. So Another clean game in a lot of other areas, a lot of disciplined football in other areas, but just some in-game strategy like chasing points is just, it's table stakes. You can't make that mistake in the second quarter that, that puts your team in jeopardy in the fourth. Um, another area that I want to dive into more is just ineptitude in scoring opportunities, point, putting points on the board when we're in a scoring position. But before we get there, we need to talk about Mike Mayer and and the defense who really won this football game and deserve a lot of shout outs. So I'm going to start with Mayer and, and maybe Mike, I'll let you go into the defense. Mike Mayer had a pro football focus grade of 93. He caught 11 of the 14 targets that came his way for 118 yards and two touchdowns. He's now the all-time leading reception tight end in Notre Dame history. And maybe more impressive to me is we keep talking about how he does on 50-50 balls and how often he goes and gets a first down. He was two for three on 50-50 balls in this game. So continuing to track in the high 60s, low 70s on, on 50-50 catch rates, which is just phenomenal. That that number should be 50%. And Mike Mayer's 67% yet again. And seven of his 11 catches went for a first down. Um, the only other offensive players to grade above a 71, which is sort of the benchmark for 
solid starter, you know, good starter performance. The only three other players were Drew Pine, Jaden Thomas, and Blake Fisher. So on a night when a lot of um, individual guys didn't have it and, and, you know, really wasn't a full team effort, Mike Mayer absolutely carried this offense. It's almost getting scary to think how bad this offense would be without Mike Mayer. Like if Mike Mayer, heaven forbid, goes down with an injury, he is literally the entire offense right now um, on third downs in the red zone. Like he's the only thing a lot of times that we have going just because you can throw the ball anywhere you want. And Mike Mayer goes and does godlike things and makes ridiculous plays. So incredibly fun to watch Mike Mayer. We spent the bye week talking about how he might only be the second best tight end in the country behind Bowers at Georgia. And of course he comes right back and proves us wrong that he is clearly the number one um, best tight end in the country. So I'm, I'm never going to, put bulletin board material out there on Mike Mayer again and, and question whether or not he's the first or second best because um, then he's just going to go and do things like this and completely prove Garage Talk podcast wrong and remind us how just truly incredible Mike Mayer is. Yeah, he must have been listening to our podcast. Must have been, to be, clearly. To be fair, yeah. we, weren't, we weren't insulting. We're like, we were saying Michael Mayer has been fantastic, but maybe he hasn't been this having maybe he's not having this historic historic season that we're expecting and then he immediately responds with one of the most notable games from a Notre Dame player particularly a tight end um, that I can recall so yeah I mean he pretty absurd game from Michael Mayer and his pro football focus grade reflects that a 93 that's basically telling you that this is one of the best players in all of college football so hopefully we can we can keep seeing this I think the connection between him and Pine is getting better each week and I'll just have a brief note on Pine Pine seems like he's settling into the quarterback role seems like he's getting more comfortable um he had a, a couple nice deep throws so so far he was a little shaky to start but it seems like he's actually been pleasantly surprising with each subsequent week so that's also something to monitor he had he graded out really well in this game too so if uh if we're looking better at the quarterback position each week that's also very promising for the offense moving forward too now moving to the defense they didn't do anything particularly flashy we had that uh, interception at literally the first play of the game which was uh obviously a great start to the game but beyond that we we did we generated a good bit of havoc, but it, again, it wasn't anything particularly flashy. I think one area of weakness, and and really the one I think the one thing that kind of drags down how I, I viewed the the defense this game is we showed some softness late in the third quarter, start of the fourth, where we gave up back to back touchdown drives. Beyond that, we looked. I thought we looked really good. It was just there was that that period where we looked pretty soft. They did respond when it when it really mattered late in the game when we had to hold them. They did they stepped in and locked them down but it's that uh that stretch with those back-to-back touchdown drives by BYU that I think kind of kind of lowers how we have to grade out their performance a bit one other note is we did we mentioned BYU they do have some explosiveness Jaron Hall one of the better QBs in the country and actually this game a couple of their a couple of their receiver weapons who had been injured the last few weeks were back so that was key for them and they actually did get some production out of those guys so this was a perhaps maybe even more explosive offense this game than what BYU had been throughout most of the season. And we actually held them in check really early. Hall, I forgot how many yards he had in the first half, but it was it was a really, really paltry number. He made, maybe didn't even have 20 passing yards going into the half, but finished the game a little bit better. Uh, he, he had a couple long throws that our, that our defense gave up. So uh, that, that was, again, a couple, a couple of the weaker points with our defense. I think our secondary generally did fairly well, but there were a couple busts. And so that came from uh, from Jaden Mickey. He had a really notable one 
where basically I think it was the BYU slot player essentially just ran by him and Mickey, I think just, yeah, he just didn't know it's Mickey. It was clear that Mickey just didn't really know the assignment there. And the guy just ran by Mickey. And then it seems like Mickey didn't realize that he wouldn't have any safety help there. And then it was a, it was an easy touchdown essentially. And then Clarence Lewis, he's been struggling a little bit so far this year. Well, I'm not a little bit. He's been struggling quite a bit. So he had one play where he got totally burned on a deep route, but Fortunately for us, the ball was overthrown and then totally, we'll talk about this a little bit more later, but he totally whiffed on a tackle on that third, I think it was third and 18, which was also a big bummer. But beyond that, uh, these guys only played, they, they only played a handful of snaps. It's not like they were in a ton, but when they were in, they actually allowed quite a bit of damage. But other than that, Bracey targeted just six times for 27 yards. He actually got hurt. He looked like he strained a hammy, but it seems like he's probably going to be okay. It's questionable for the next game. Benjamin Morrison, who continues to be a revelation, I would say, for a true freshman, continues to play really well. Target just once for zero catches. His pro football focus grade was only 60. That was a little bit of a head scratcher to me. I thought he was okay. But overall, I thought the defense was fine. We just had those moments of, of softness late in the third, early in the fourth. A couple bad plays by the secondary, a couple busts given up by, by a couple of these players I mentioned. But beyond that, I think they held up pretty well overall it's a little frustrating though because this seemed like again kind of like the theme that we're mentioning at the beginning of this segment it felt like we could have we could have done better you could see you could see how dominant we were at certain times and then we just had these these lapses where we weren't quite playing at that same high level we were at different moments in the game yeah and again the the one name you maybe didn't uh, mentioned there in the secondary, uh, along with Bracey and Morrison, who were really solid. Cam Hart was targeted just twice for eight yards. He graded out at 77, arguably his best game of the year. And as as I look at how we've now done against elite quarterbacks, I've kind of just started throwing pro football focus grades out the window because you mentioned a guy like Ben Morris, who I think played 30, 40 snaps in this game, so a really good sample size. And he's a corner, and he was only targeted once for zero catches. So he pitched a shutout. Like, I don't know how you pitch a shutout as a starting cornerback against one of the best offenses in the country and only grade out at 60. And now the stat line, so Jaron Hall pretty much got all of his production in those two back-to-back drives that you mentioned. But for the game, he was 9 of 17 for 120 yards. He averages throwing for 300 yards a game. And now if you combine Drake May, C.J. Stroud, and Jaron Hall, arguably three of the 10 best quarterbacks in the country, um... They've averaged 215 yards per game against Notre Dame and a 60% completion rate. That is absolutely incredible for, for Notre Dame's pass defense. So whether that's pressure coming from up front or it's the secondary doing their job against some really elite quarterback play, Notre Dame's defenses showed up in, in three of the first five games of the year. And I think the defensive line gets, gets another, you know, shout out in this one. They had seven pressures leading to two sacks. Um, that was seven of the 20 dropbacks for, for Jaron Hall. So a 35% pressure rate. So one in three times that the quarterback was dropping back, Notre Dame's defensive line was generating pressure. Um, just an incredible night at the offense for them to keep Jaron Hall, um, off schedule, not get him a lot of time to throw, not be in these situations of, you know, broken down plays or losing containment where the secondary needs to defend for a really long time. So a really nice tandem between the defensive line and, and the secondary. And I'll, I'll just highlight it. Great game for Cam Hart, Tariq Bracey, and Benjamin Morrison against one of the deeper wide receiving units we're going to see. Um, switching to another subject, the red zone, and, and more broadly scoring opportunities. 
was just really anemic in this game. We've been harping on Tom Reese for a couple of weeks. He's putting up a ton of yards, which is awesome. And what it's resulted in is not that many points. So collegefootballdata.com tracks a stat called scoring opportunity efficiency. And it looks at the points per drive that an offense scores when they get within 40 yards of the end zone. So if you get within the other team's 40-yard line, and effectively you're on the cusp of field goal range or in field goal range or down in the red zone, like if you get within 40 yards, that's a scoring opportunity. In those situations, how many points do you score? Notre Dame's averaged 3.4. So we've averaged slightly better than a field goal when we have a scoring opportunity. That ranks 103rd in the country. Um, that's just not going to cut it. Like if you're putting up 500 yards of offense in college football, you need to be scoring more than 28 points every single time. And we're not like the other teams that are worse than us aren't putting up 500 yards of offense. Like when you put up 500 yards of offense, you got to figure it out. Um, so Mike double clicking within that in this particular game, we had nine opportunities, nine times we had the ball within the 40 yard line and we averaged less than a field goal. 2.7 2.7 yards. Now, again, th- there was a, I think the end of the game, kneel down, puts up a zero in there. And, you know, we, we went for it on downs and got zero. So a couple of, you know, fluke drives that went up in zeros, but still 2.7 points per scoring opportunity. What did you see in the red zone? Why weren't we able to finish off drives? Why weren't we able to get in the red zone with more or into the end zone with more consistency? So I don't want to, I don't want to put it all on the on the play calling, but I do think our play calling in the red zone has has been pretty vanilla. So I'm gonna I'm gonna throw out a couple of our red zone call them just like some of these touchdown plays that we had. So we had three touchdowns from 19, 24, 30 yards. For the purposes of this, the 19 yarder is technically the red zone, but we essentially had a third and long play there. So I don't think that necessarily applies for our analysis here. I'm gonna focus here on three drives that we had in the red zone. Twelve plays and. Only of those 12 plays, only one was successful. So that's a really horrible success rate within the red zone. Seven. And so you're going to see a common theme here as I go through it. But seven of these 12 uh, plays were runs right up the middle. And none of these runs were successful. So starting with the first drive. So this this started at the BYU 44 after an interception. We ran a play action. And this is this is something Brett and I have talked about quite a bit. We need to run more play action. These these plays are extremely successful. If you look at our statistics, they over overwhelming they are overwhelmingly efficient plays. And obviously, you can there's a point of diminishing returns, but we definitely haven't hit it yet. So first first play play action success to mare. So not a surprise. These types of like I said, these plays are successful. Then after that, run up the middle stuffed, not successful. Run to the edge, not successful, but pretty close. And then an empty set drop back that was not successful, which led to a field goal. Moving to the next drive that we're talking about here. This was the fourth drive of the game. So we so run up the middle, not successful, but fairly close. Same with the second one, run up the middle, not successful. And then same on the, on the third one, another run up the middle, not successful. And in this case, we went for it on fourth and inches and it was not successful. Fourth and inches, we go shotgun pistol, four wide receivers, but then do the same thing here. We're trying to trick them, make them think that we're not doing a run up the middle, but BYU isn't fooled. They had the, the box loaded and, uh, and again, as I said, it was not successful. Now, the next drive, this is the ninth drive of the game. We had a run up the middle, not successful. Run up the middle, not successful on the next one. And then we try to design bubble screen to mirror. So again, not successful. You can tell, I think a very common theme here, as I mentioned at the beginning, is that it's a lot of runs up the middle. BYU knew that they were coming. We, we didn't really mix it up a whole lot. And 
even if you believe that your offensive line is, is 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 one of those elite lines and can just bully people, and I don't think we're quite at that point yet from a from a run blocking standpoint, but if you're so predictable, teams can just load up the box and it's still pretty easy for them to prevent it. And I think that's exactly what's going on here. There's very little variety to what, at least in this game, to what we were doing in the red zone. And BYU, they're good enough to be able to to stop very obvious plays. So I think I think that's the takeaway here is is we <laughs> I think we just need to mix up the play calling a little bit more in the red zone. And you got to do some runs up the middle, of course. But if you're doing it every single time and you and you're just saying, hey, you know what? We should be able to push these guys over and get them through, and it's not happening again. It's not happening time after time after time. I think that means it's time to change it up in the meantime, at least. Yeah, I completely agree. So overall in this game, we had a 47% success rate on offense. Offenses want to be in the high 40s. That's a really, really good number. It was 54% outside the red zone, 8% in the red zone. Like, you just can't have an 8% success rate in the red zone. It, it just... it can't happen it's totally unacceptable like it's not even like we're getting close it's not even like some of the red zone plays were successful literally only one red zone play was successful in this entire game and it just goes back to what you said getting predictable mike if you and i can figure out tom reese's tendencies to just want to keep running the ball up the middle i promise you that the defensive coordinators who are watching every single tape and every single play are also seeing the same thing and i'm sure they're sitting there thinking Oh my gosh, this is the greatest gift ever. All we need to do is put all of our players in the middle on the red zone and we'll magically come up with a stop because Tom Reese won't do anything else with his super athletic players. There's no chance he'll run a jet sweep with Jaden Lindsay, Brandon Lindsay. There's no chance he'll try to get Chris Tyree in the open field. There's no chance he'll ever put Drew Pine on a bootleg in the red zone. Like he'll never come up with that idea. He's just going to keep trying to run it up the middle. So I, I can't agree more. We, Saw a decent amount. Actually, this was the highest mix of runs to the outside. Um, in this game, less than 25% um, is about 22% of runs were up the middle in the game in total. Uh, throughout the year, that's been about 35%, and we've been asking to see that come down. In the red zone, though, we, we went right back to our tendencies. We went right back to just no creativity, doing exactly what the defense is going to expect. And look, if it's first and goal at the one and you want to run the ball up the middle four times and your offensive line can't get you one run on four attempts, I get it. But on first and 10, on second and seven, on third and five, like at some point you've got to use a broader playbook in the red zone. And I get it. You don't have Aaron Rodgers or Patrick Mahomes. Like I get it. You got the backup quarterback and you probably want to be a little risk averse and you don't want to turn it up, but you're up 25 to six in this game. Like you had a big lead. You had a chance to absolutely put them away and you just got to do something more than run up the middle. And Tom Reese just continues to, to fail to do that. I thought the rest of the play calling is, is worth calling out though, that it was a little better. Um, again, you mentioned play action. We had seven play action plays. Six were completed, 58 yards. So that, that's about a, what, 70, 80% completion rate, a 83% completion rate, and a touchdown came out of that to Mike Mayer. On non-play action, did pretty well as well. 16 for 21 for, for 200 yards. So both play action and, and non-play action is working. But once again, I think this is the fourth game in a row, really going back to Ohio State when nothing worked. But the fourth game in a row where play action has worked 80 plus percent of the time. Just keep doing more play action. Like I don't get why we just keep calling that five, six, seven times a game and not 15 
and making it more of a staple. Um, the one other play, Mike, I, I, I wanted to get your take on was the Jaden Thomas touchdown. It was third and two. We were at the 30 yard line. Um, it seemed pretty clear that, uh, we were willing to go for it on fourth down because we, we ran basically a play with three short routes, but Drew Pine was locked in on Thomas going deep the entire way. So it was clear we were going to take our shot. Um, and you know, if we don't get it, it sets up fourth down and Jaden Thomas makes a ridiculous catch, basically catches it behind the defenders, um, back. I mean, like basically caught it around him was great coverage by the BYU corner. So Jaden Thomas really bails the team out. But I'm, I'm curious, are you okay with that call knowing where our offense has been at, taking a deep shot when we've got a chance to more easily convert there on third and two for an offense that hasn't done well on fourth and short? How do you feel about that play call that worked out, but really I think as Jaden Thomas bailed us out with a phenomenal play, not necessarily because we schemed up some great play and a guy got wide open. Like it was a really great individual effort. How do you feel about that play call in that moment? So, like, high concept, generally I'm okay with that in that situation, and that's ignoring the specific aspects of our offense. I think generally if you told me, hey, a team is in a third and two situation, and they're in four down territory, they're going to take a shot at the end zone and then just go for it on fourth. I think in general I agree with that. But, Britt, I think the points that you're making are, does that actually make sense for our offense when, as we've been saying, we've been struggling in some of these short yardage situations? I think I'm generally still okay with it. And I think with Jaden Thomas, I think – it's interesting. So I, if you're BYU after that play happened, you're, you're looking at the tape and you're like, what the heck? Who the, who is this guy? This guy wasn't on the tape at all. There's no way that we could have prepared for that. And then he just makes an absurd catch. So I do, it's possible. Maybe, maybe there's something about Jaden Thomas that the team knows that we don't know. And there was an aspect there, but I do think, I do think generally that was a low probability event. I think heaving that up to Jaden Thomas, at least. For me, not having any information that Jaden Thomas could regularly do anything like that, I would have thought that that would have been uh, something that would generally fail many more times than it would succeed. And then if you assume that, then that sets us up in another fourth and two. And then in this game, based on how we knew it was going, it would probably be a run up the middle where we would have gotten stuffed. So I think I think the way that this game was going, maybe, I don't know, you could you kind of go either way on it. I'm a little split on it myself. I think the fact that it worked, maybe, maybe that makes me a little bit more okay with it. I think if it didn't work, we'd be talking about it and we'd, our, our perspective, perspective would be, wow, okay, that was, that was kind of stupid. We, we took a shot on third and two. Why didn't we just try like a short pass or something like that? If it didn't work, I think I could, I could see us easily having that reaction if we didn't have that touchdown. So uh, first off, Jaden Thomas, graduate of Pace Academy here in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, a high school I, I know very well from, from some Atlanta connections that, uh, go to the school. And most importantly, uh, Sam Asaf, friend of the show, our only guest we've ever had on the show, a walk-on running back on the team, also a Pace Academy alumni who was uh, high school classmates with Jaden Thomas. So th- that's a cool story and excited to see Pace Academy repping in, in the Notre Dame uniforms. What I am actually, I'm okay with the call. If anyone ever wants to take an aggressive gamble that also means you're going for it on fourth down, the data analytics love you. Like the, the data analytics say you should go for it every single time it's fourth and less than five, no matter where you are on the field. So I'm always supportive of taking aggressive play calling. Um, every ND pundit from Pete Sampson to Eric Hansen to everyone covering Notre Dame football highlighted this play as here's Tom Reese. We finally see the great play calling again. We finally see him being aggressive. We finally see him opening up the playbook. And I'm just like, 
in a game where we didn't run a single jet sweep, which has been a wildly successful play for us all year, in a game when we were six for seven on play action and only called it seven times, when we ran the ball up the middle nonstop in the red zone with no creativity, I don't think you can sit and praise Tom Reese, the great creative, aggressive play calling, here's what we've been waiting for because of this one play. And I think it more stood out to me, less whether or not I agreed with the play call, because I actually really like this play call, more that if Jaden Thomas doesn't make a ridiculously awesome catch, we might not win this game. Like it wound up being an eight point game that this was the one that took it from 12 six to 18 to six. And the game gets a heck of a lot closer and BYU only needs a field goal and a couple of those late game scenarios. And I get a bunch of other things changing this game and, you know, different decisions we make. Like, like the, it, it's a bad hypothetical to just take this play out and, and say nothing else changes in the game, but it doesn't feel sustainable. Like in this game, our three touchdowns. Were Mike Mayer doing amazing things and Jaden Thomas coming up with a ridiculously phenomenal play that doesn't seem super repeatable, at least for a young Jaden Thomas. Maybe he is the next Michael Floyd, Golden Tate, whoever, and he's going to go make a bunch of those plays. But it just feels like even when we do score a touchdown, we either need to rely on the greatest tight end in Notre Dame history or a phenomenal catch by someone that we haven't seen do that all year. And I'm just waiting for like, where's the easy touchdown score that we just clearly schemed up? That we just went and executed a play and it worked really well and it was easy. And it didn't require an All-American tight end and it didn't require an underclassman receiver having a breakout play, you know, highlight real best play of his college career. And that's just where like, I, I'm running out of answers other than just continuing to use the term more misdirection. But it's Tom Reese's job to come up with these answers. And so the biggest thing that I saw in that play was less whether or not it was a good call or a right call, but the fact that if it does or doesn't work, ignoring that, what it was was very unsustainable. And that's what a lot of this offense, in terms of actually taking scoring opportunities and going getting touchdowns, the word that I just kept feeling all game was like, this just feels unsustainable. Like what we're trying to do in the red zone, what we're trying to do in scoring opportunities feels really unsustainable and that's got me nervous not for Stanford not for UNLV it's got me really nervous for Clemson it's got me really nervous against USC when USC's offense is going to put up points they're not going to waste scoring opportunities like we're going to have to go toe for toe with USC in in putting points on the board and right now I believe we can get down there I then just don't know if we have the creativity and the scheme and everything else to actually go put seven on the board instead of zero and three yeah, definitely. And yeah, I mean, I think my reaction is if you told me that we were in a third and two situation and we're going to take a deep shot to J- with Jaden Thomas and you just told me that at the beginning, my reaction would have been like, wow, OK, that's that's a pretty bold call. Like that's kind of out of nowhere, basically. Of course, it worked. And look, maybe the silver lining here. I mean, it's not silver lining. Maybe a big takeaway here is maybe this is a breakout moment for Jaden Thomas. Maybe we'll look back and we'll say, oh, OK, hey, Tommy Reese is been seeing Jaden Thomas in practice and he's just been emerging, 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 and he's been doing this more regularly. So maybe for someone like Tommy, maybe for us, it seems like it was a little bit of a riskier call, but for the people who are really in the know, they knew that this was, this was coming and, and we're going to see more of it, uh, the rest of the year. I mean, certainly you can look back, uh, to a couple moments in Notre Dame football. Miles Boykin comes to mind. He had that crazy catch in the Citrus Bowl against LSU. And then it, it really was just one catch, but 
it, it, it was emblematic of what was what was to come, and he from that moment on he was he was an exceptional wide receiver. So maybe we'll see something similar here with with Jaden Thomas, and maybe this play is just uh, it's a sign of what he's been doing in practice and and what's to come. Hopefully, so if that's the case, maybe it's a little bit more sustainable. But as of right now, based on the information that we have, I don't think we can sit here in good faith and say that this is sustainable. Completely agree. Two other quick points we had been talking about before the show that I just wanted to highlight before we move on to Stanford. Um, another thing a lot of the pundits were saying is this is finally the offensive line we expected to see in the preseason or the offensive line really won this game. Our reaction is to pump the brakes on the offensive line still and, and not sure they're truly to some elite level. thought they played a really solid game. Um, a lot of big holes, it, it seemed, in the running game. But interestingly, in pass protection, we need to remind ourselves, BYU ranks 102nd in the country with 1.5 sacks per game and 108th in pass rushing grades per pro football focus. So this is not a good BYU front four in terms of generating pressure. So the fact that our offensive line was able to keep a really clean pocket for Drew Pine is great. That That's a phenomenal outcome. It'd be really troubling if they weren't able to. But I think we need to step back and realize who they're going up against and that BYU's strength is not pressuring the quarterback. And then in the run game, it was pretty interesting that the grades weren't great in our run blocking in this game, despite actually being pretty good for most of the season. We've actually been better in run blocking than we have in pass blocking. And in this game, um, the blocking grades in, in the run game weren't that great. And I think they're really brought down by the red zone rushing. I think they were really brought down by us kind of in stubborn play calling, putting our offensive line in a bad position. Because for a lot of the rest of the game, um, I thought the NBC broadcast did a pretty good job of showing huge holes that we were creating throughout the field. Um, you know, the, the one time where Audrey Estime sprung free for 54 yards was actually a run up the middle where we really just physically moved BYU's line five yards down the field and then Estime bounced it to the outside. And so I just want to remind ourselves that runs up the middle aren't working. I think that's probably more play calling, putting the offensive line in a bad position on really predictable situations where they're just outnumbered. But the offensive line still isn't winning the line of scrimmage on third and short and fourth and short. And in pass blocking, they did a really great job, but they should have done a really great job. So I I thought the offensive line played really solid in this game. Just I walked away with a different narrative of let's pump the brakes on saying this is finally the elite offensive line we're expecting. The other was defensive rotations and, and different guys getting in. Um, two quick ones to highlight. We've said it a few times. Ben Morrison has officially replaced Clarence Lewis as the starting cornerback opposite Cam Hart. Clarence Lewis was a really breakout underclassman that surprised a lot of us, but it's another good reminder. He was the number 727 recruit in his class. Um, ben Morrison was right around a top 300 recruit. And so over time, over years, over development, Having those top 300 four-star recruits versus more of a developmental project, you could start just seeing some of that in Clarence Lewis's play. And then J.D. Bertrand. Um, we've picked on him a lot, but the linebacker rotation is finally seeing him not play 100% of the snaps. Um, in fact, he played just 54% of the snaps in this game. Kaiser was also about 55-60% of the snaps. Maris Luafau played actually the most at about 70% of the defensive snaps. But then that was sprinkled in with Prince Colley and Bo Bauer and different nickel and dime packages that actually only had two linebackers on the field at the same time. So this roster management 
of rotating linebackers is something we've been talking about, Mike, since we started this show a year ago. We thought J.D. Bertrand, a lot of his underperformance was more just driven by being gassed in the fourth quarter. Finally seeing a better rotation at that position, partially because we're deeper, right? Last year, Maris Lufa was hurt. Prince Collie was a freshman. Now the whole, you know, all five of those rotation players are here and healthy with another year of experience under their belt, but really like seeing more of a true rotation at linebacker, keeping guys fresher. Yeah, I agree with that. I, so great to see more of a rotation at linebacker. It's one of our deeper positions. I will say with Bertrand, he's had those targeting penalties. So uh, it's possible in the next couple games, we see his snap count climb up a bit. So that, that might be something that's kind of artificially keeping it low. But I do think overall, the theme of, of depth and more rotation is good. On on Ben Morrison and Clarence Lewis, yeah, Morrison's just emerging. It's really promising that a true freshman is playing at this level. bit discouraging that someone like Lewis is is falling off. That doesn't mean that he's not going to be able to find his way. I think you mentioned Tariq. Uh, we mentioned Tariq Bracey. Tariq Bracey is actually an interesting example here. He started out very strong early in his career, and then he had a little bit of a dip. He kind of... He kind of fell off, wasn't playing as well. And then this year he's really, he's really emerged again. So hopefully we see a similar path with Clarence Lewis. He's able to find his stride again. And then the last point I'll just make is on the offensive line. I agree with everything that you said, Brett. I think really promising signs. The pass protection has been good. It's supposed to be good, but they're at least checking the box. And we weren't necessarily doing that at points earlier in the season. From a run blocking standpoint, there are some very promising signs there too. As you mentioned, the NBC crew was showing clips of very large running holes for our running backs. That's You obviously love to see that. We're not quite doing it in those short yardage situations yet. But again, as you mentioned, a lot of that could just be the play calling. If the, def- if the defense knows exactly what you're going to do, they can just load the box and they can just stuff you. So I, I, I do think I'm encouraged by the offensive line, but I want to hold off on the coronation for now. So we'll see how it progresses. But overall, I think... I think I'm I'm feeling encouraged, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if in a couple weeks we're look we're talking about the offensive line and how they've become an elite unit. Absolutely, hope hope that's where we're trending, and and would would love to see that continue. So that onto the Stanford game. Um, you know, going into this week, moving forward, um, you know, it's a, a rivalry game, and uh, we'll have a motivated Stanford team that, and it's going to be a talented football team that um, is going to come in here and. And present a huge challenge for our football team. So, as I told the guys, enjoy the win for a day, and we have to move forward. Today we'll practice. Uh, we didn't practice yesterday because of the late arrival, but today we'll we'll meet, put the BYU game to rest, and we gotta get ready for Stanford. So, um, with that, I'll kind of open up for questions. Notre Dame returns home to South Bend to take on the Stanford Cardinal. At time of recording, the Vegas line is up to fifteen and a half points. So Notre Dame heavy favorites in this one. Really, the most lopsided spread we've seen in the Notre Dame Stanford series, and I, I can't remember a, a bigger lopsided spread. And this is one of my favorite previews to do. So I'm going to talk for about 60 seconds, and then Mike, if you want to do the rest, go, go for it. But I called this five years ago that Stanford was on the precipice of disaster. And what happened was college football went to an early signing period where you could essentially get signed commitments in December, basically between the end of the regular season and and the bowl season. And it sort of made the traditional early February signing day no longer relevant. And Stanford's admission department refused to change their admission guidance. They sent out acceptance letters in January 
in early December, you're not accepted to Stanford. And if you're not accepted to Stanford, you're not allowed to commit to the football team. And what happened was a bunch of four and five star recruits were sitting there thinking, well, I don't want to risk it. If I don't get my acceptance letter in January, I might not have a spot to play. So they just ex- committed somewhere else in December and Stanford lost out. That year in 2018, they had the 40th recruiting class after consistently being top 20 for really over a decade between both the David Shaw era and the uh, Jim Harbaugh era. Now they've recovered in three of the last four classes. They were between 21 and 27, but you could really start seeing the cracks as that just really completely whiff in a recruiting class started playing through. And then their 2021 recruiting class was number 48. So some of the on-field performance of that first year before they're kind of able to recover in their process has really now started leaking into some of the more recent recruiting. David Shaw's on the hot seat and, and Mike, that the wheels are falling off um, on, on the farm out in Stanford. Definitely. I think from Brett's perspective, he feels like Michael Burry from the big short. He's just screaming, Absolutely. This was my moment. If, if I could make, if I could have shorted the Stanford program, I, I would be retired right now. It, it, it'd have been the big short. Yeah. Brett's been calling this. He's, uh, he's been, he's been, he's been, uh, screaming that the sky is falling and it, and it finally happened for him. But yeah, Stanford, it's, it's interesting because they really were the cream. Really, they were the cream of the crop for the Pac 12 for a while and also for academic, uh, football programs too. And it, it is a pretty, pretty just shocking. Dev- I mean, not shocking for Brett, but shocking, I think, for most people that they've fallen off so far. And I, I do think another element is that for them, Stanford, they're at least for Notre Dame. I feel like for our graduate school programs, I, th- I think if we have a good football player and that they want to stay another year, they can generally get into our grad school programs. And it, it doesn't seem like it's that much of a challenge for Stanford. I, it, it does not seem like that's the case. They've had quite a few transfers. They've had quite a few people leave after they get their undergraduate degrees. And I think their, their graduate programs are much hard, harder to qualify, even if you're a really good football player. So one thing, one issue that they've had is they've had, I remember there have been many off seasons where they've just had an exodus of transfers. And then also because they have very stringent requirements, similar to us in this regard, at least in terms of actually getting transfers, it's not, it's not as easy for them to actually fill those gaps. So I think when you look at that, you look at the recruiting fall off, you look at their, you look at their record kind of declining, all of this is coming together. And it's not the Stanford program that we were used to seeing that would qualify for Rose Bowl and was really actually in, in, in the playoff picture and the national title picture at times. I don't think they were, they were ever, they're never actually good enough to actually win, but they, their record certainly was at the point to where they were in that conversation, at least. And they're certainly nowhere there now. Um, but really, really, really surprising that Shaw's just lost his way with this program. So for some stats here to, to help frame it a little bit more. We mentioned that their talent actually, if you just look at their talent face value, it's not, it's not quite as bad as you expect. If you look at the 24 seven towel composite of 23, but if you look at SP plus, which is really the best metric for how good your team actually is, they're 75th. And, uh, if you look at pro football focus grades, they're 86. So that's just suggesting a team that maybe even if they have a few pieces of, of, of talent from a recruiting standpoint, they're really not, they're really not getting a whole lot out of them. And then, Moving on to how that's actually translate. Obviously, if you have a really low SP plus grade and rating, it's your odds are you're not doing pretty, you're not doing particularly well in the football field. And that's exactly what we're seeing this year. So, so far they have four straight losses. Three were multi-score games that were never close. That's USC, Washington, Oregon. They're all top 25. They're actually top 25 teams. So it's not like these are just, uh, really crappy teams that they're losing to, but these games weren't close. They weren't even hanging in there. At one point, Stanford trailed by 27 points, 23 points, and 28 points, respectively, in those games. So 
if, if you saw the final scores, you may think that some of these were a little closer than they were, but actually uh, they, they were pretty much out of hand the entire time. And uh, another fact that I'm sure Brett, uh, this just kind of goes with his, his, I loved about, writing Brett this Wilson. note. I loved writing this note in the research. Yeah. This is one of those stats. This, this is like, if you're just looking to throw some hate on a program, these are those stats that you just, as soon as you discover them, you just relish uh, sharing them, but it's been 373 days since Stanford has beaten an FBS team, 11 straight losses to FBS opponents. And that's, that's, I think that pretty much says it all right there. That tells you how far they've fallen. So we'll be pretty quick going through their offense and defense. Now, all of that being said, the last time that Notre Dame was this big of a favorite at home, we lost to Marshall just three games ago, four games ago. So Notre Dame fans should not totally write off Stanford. Um, they definitely have some pieces. They definitely have still some talent on the field, even if it's not the talent that they had gotten accustomed to over the last 10, 15 years out in Palo Alto. Starting on their defense, this is by far the biggest issue at this program. They are 109th in rush defense. They are 104th in pass rush. And they are 94th in coverage per pro football focus. What that translates to is they just don't do anything well. And it's I'm not trying to like overly pile onto this program, but their defense... If they go up against a really good passing attack, they give up a lot of yards. If they give go up against a really good rushing attack, they give up a lot of yards. Um, they only have one starter who grades out above a 70. Again, 70 and above means above average college starter. So only one of their 11 starters is considered above average on defense. And that's in the secondary. Their, their start, uh, starting safety, Williamson, has a grade of 73. Another safety, Fields, and, and then a cornerback, Bonner, have grades in the high 60s. So their secondary is probably their strongest unit, similar to what we've said in a couple of the previews like the UNC game. I'm okay with that because our wide receivers are our already weakest unit. We're not expecting our wide receivers to, to go blow the doors off. So if that's their strength um, is shutting down our wide receivers, I'm almost okay just conceding that. And then what that really means is their their defensive line and their linebackers have just been really bad. Their four defensive linemen have grades of 65, 58, 55, and 54. Again, in the 50s means that a typical bench player in the college football level will will do the same thing as you. Um, And then their three linebackers, starting linebackers, are 59, 50, uh, sorry, 55, and 40. So in their front seven, only one starter is even in the 60s, which means an average grade. In the 50s means you're kind of replaceable by a bench player. And so six of their starting seven or six of their seven starters in the front seven are really at a replacement level grade in, in pro football focus. Yeah, really low. I mean, as we've mentioned many times, these pro football focus grades are not opponent adjusted. They've played some pretty good opponents, but uh, these grades are really low and their SP plus rating is really low too. So it, that doesn't, that doesn't explain. This is actually just a bad defense uh, across the board. So maybe this is a game. I'm not saying that we should be running the ball up the middle, but if there were a game where we might actually be able to have some success there, it's actually possible. <laughs> this, this is the one, this is the one. Where <laughs> All right. If happen. Tom Reese runs the ball up the middle in the red zone, Brett will not be upset on next week's podcast. There. I said it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we'll see, we'll see how this goes. You're, hey, you're, you're on a roll with. Cole I am harping for the glass half full podcast. Tom Reese has been getting my wrath in the last few shows. Yeah, well, we'll never, we'll definitely never get him as a guest on this podcast. No, absolutely <laughs> not. <laughs> um, 
Now, moving to their offense. So they actually have some nice pieces here. So Tanner McGee, McKee, so he has a legit chance at an NFL career, pro football focus grade of 80. One of those players where you just look at the current landscape with the transfer market. He's someone who really could have landed on a, a much better team, could have put himself on a contender. There are plenty of teams out there that need need a high-end quarterback, and he, he certainly would have been in, in high demand. So a little surprising that he didn't transfer, although I can't— He's actually can't, someone that a lot of the Notre Dame message boards were wondering why we didn't try to convince Tanner McKee to transfer to Notre Dame— Knowing, sure, we had Tyler Buckner, but not started before. Sure, we've got Drew Pine, but was inconsistent before. And we had talked in the offseason about getting a quarterback transfer. Tanner McKee was referenced by a lot of the Notre Dame kind of message boards and, and recruiting people that follow this stuff as a potential target. But he, he chose to stay put um, out in Palo Alto. Yeah, it's a bit of a shame. I mean, it's looking like Pine may end up being better than Absolutely. expected. Yeah. Which is great, which is fantastic. We are... I certainly was very skeptical of Pine at the beginning of the season. We can I mean, we can talk about that later. That's a long tangent, but McKee, it's it's very interesting that uh, that he stuck around, and you can't blame someone for sticking with their school. I think that's that's loyalty that certainly fans can appreciate. Um, and now, look, he's not Jalen Hall, he's not C.J. Stroud or, or Drake May, but he's he's a really good QB who's who may be able to find a career in the NFL. Um, looking at his stats. 10 touchdowns, five interceptions. So the sets don't pop out at you, but he's really not working with much. And he's been sacked 16 times through five games. So his line's not protecting him very well. His top targets, Michael Wilson, averaging 20 yards per catch. That's that's a bit of an eye-popping stat. It's one player that Notre Dame, we have to be really careful to not let him take over this game. At times, we've shown a little bit soft, uh, a little bit of softness with busted coverage and giving up some big plays in the secondary. Uh, so that's something that we got to make sure that we we keep on lockdown in this game. Elijah Higgins, that's another player worth calling out. He's their team leader and team leader in catches, a little bit more of a possession guy. And then their lead rusher, Casey Filkins, not only four yards per carry. So it's not like he's killing it, but uh, that's their primary option at, at running back. And then, as I mentioned, as I alluded to with the sacks, they've given up a lot of sacks. Their offensive line has not has not been playing well, to say the least. They have they, they do have two solid starters, Nugent at center and Rouse at tackle, but the other three are not very good. It's gotten to the point to where right tackle is essentially just a revolving door of where they're just trying anybody to see if, see if they can play better and stick. But in terms of line yards, uh, they rank 126. So their offensive line, if we're complaining at times about the offensive line not getting pushed, Stanford's is, is quite a bit worse. And then I will say with Notre Dame's offensive line, actually the push that we've been getting lately has been better, but Stanford's has been bad consistently throughout the entire season. So, this is an offensive line that uh, I think our defensive line, if they continue trending the way that they've been trending, where they're generating more havoc, where we're being effective, stopping the run, this is a game where they should really feast. Yeah, and you know the, the one other thing I'd add on to that is Michael Wilson and Elijah Higgins. We've talked about how Stanford has not been recruiting the level they've been, but has still been recruiting pretty well. Michael Wilson was a top 250 recruit. Elijah Higgins was a top 100 recruit. Um, neither Cam Hart nor Benjamin Morrison nor Tariq Bracey, who will be covering those two guys, ha- had been recruited at that level. So this is one area in this game where, you know, they've got a couple targets and they're very talented players and they've got a good quarterback throwing them the ball. Now, Notre Dame has gone up against really talented, explosive passing games in UNC, Ohio State. And this last weekend against BYU and has so far answered the bell every time. But if there is one way where Stanford will 
pull off an upset here. It is going to be Tanner McKee having an explosive day to Michael Wilson and Elijah Higgins. Like that is their one opportunity where there might be a, you know, kind of kink in the Notre Dame arm, in the Notre Dame's armor where we've given up big plays. We've had some busted coverages. We've, you know, been a little susceptible. Not, not bad. Like we've been really good against some really elite quarterbacks, but Tanner McKee to Wilson and Higgins is a pretty lethal combination if they can figure it out. Their biggest problem though, is the offensive line just isn't supporting Tanner McKee whatsoever. So they've got two solid starters in Nugent at center and Rouse at tackle. The other three stink. Like their pro football focus grades are in the 50s and 60s. Um, and it's gotten to the point where at right tackle, I think they've now started three different players. And from what I was able to read, I, I might be missing something in here. But it doesn't even seem like injuries. It's just like they can't get a fifth guy to be an offensive lineman that's worth having on the field for a second game in a row. So... The offensive line has been a big issue. The number one th- indicator for me of whether or not Notre Dame's winning this game is if our front four without big blitzes, like if our front four is generating pressure and making Tanner McKee uncomfortable, that has been the recipe for disaster for Stanford so far this season. So I want to make sure I'm seeing that. Early in the game is Foskey and Riley Mills and the Adam Alola brothers and Howard Cuss. Are they getting in the backfield? And if they are... Every single person watching this game should be thinking, okay, this is exactly how the wheels fall off for Stanford. This is exactly how they get behind. They're not going to, you know, they're going to give up points on the defensive side of the ball. So can their offense go do a shootout? They can't do a shootout if, if Tanner McKee's under pressure. So that's going to be the one thing I'm really zoned in on in the first few drives is, are we getting in the backfield? So turning to score predictions, this one moved around a little bit in the line. I saw it opened up at 17 points. It actually went down to 15 and a half, which I've kept referencing throughout the show. I'm now actually pulling ESPN back up and it's moved back to 17. So a little bit of movement in the line. Uh, but for purposes of our predictions, we're, we're going to say it's a 17 point spread. And that's right on top of SP plus. Um, SP plus has Notre Dame is about a, 13 point favorite on a neutral field and, and with the home field advantage that puts it at about 16 to 17 points. So right on top of, um, the Las Vegas spread and ESPN has Notre Dame winning this about 90% of the time. So Notre Dame heavy favorites in this game. Mike, where do you see the, the scoreboard on this one? So I think Notre Dame, the last couple of weeks, we have had a lot of moments of brilliance, and then we've also had moments in games with big lapses. So the BYU game is a perfect example of that. We looked very dominant at times, and as I mentioned earlier, then we also had a stretch at the late third, early fourth, where it seemed like the wheels might come off. We obviously caught them, but so I think what I've been looking for is a game where we just have a complete performance, where all aspects of on offense and defense are just clicking for pretty much the whole game. And we haven't really had that yet. So I'm, I'm actually predicting for that to finally happen this game. I'm predicting for a, just, just uh, us to just finally have a game where we start carry it through to the middle of the game and then finish. That's, that's what I, I think that's what we've been waiting for. And I think that's what the team is, is uh, really working for too. I think it's probably been frustrating for them to just kind of see the potential times, but then also at times fall a little short. So I think with that in mind, I, I'm predicting a score of 38 to 17. So I'm, I'm predicting that we beat the spread and we finally get uh, more or less a blowout win over an inferior opponent. I think that's something that it seems like we're building to that. Hopefully we don't take a step back, but it seems like we've been seeing some progress uh, each of the last couple of weeks. And 
um, I'm predicting that we're able to continue that and, and really put a little bit of a statement here. What, what was the score you said? 38-17. So. 38-17. So I continue to struggle predicting games this year. We're 3-2 and two against the spread. But very interestingly, if we are favored by a large number, we're 0-2 against the spread, Marshall and Cal. If it's a close spread or we're underdogs, we covered the spread against Ohio State. And really, by nature of just winning the games, we covered against North Carolina and BYU. And so this is back to one of those where Notre Dame's a big favorite. And when we're a big favorite, we're 0-2 this year. And on top of that, Stanford makes me really nervous here. Um, Stanford has been down big. We mentioned this early. Against um, USC, Washington, Oregon, they were down 23 points, 28 points, and 27 points. And in all of those games, that they wound up getting some garbage time points, and they lost by 13, 18, and 18. So they kind of you know, made up some garbage time in the fourth quarter, clearly didn't kind of bend over and just let the game end. And so whenever you're favored by 15 and a half points and haven't done a good job closing, right? Like Notre Dame has let BYU back in the game. We've let UNC back in the game. And Stanford, on the flip side of that, has done an okay job getting back in the game. So that makes me really nervous. Andy's only going to win by 10 points, and it's going to be some backdoor cover where we're up two, three scores the whole time. We're not doing a good job closing out the games, and Stanford is you know, doing what they've done here in the last kind of three of their four losses. However, I think it's really annoying the Notre Dame defense and coaching staff that we haven't truly dominated an offense yet this year. And clearly Marshall was a failure. Cal, I think I'd actually argue we did dominate, but it was still a close game and didn't feel that way. And Ohio State, North Carolina, BYU, we just keep saying it. They were three great offenses that were going to be tough to slow down, and we generally slowed them down. But Notre Dame's defense has at least given up 17 points in every single game this year. They've really yet to have one where wire to wire, they've just manhandled an offense. And I think they're really worked up about that. And, and maybe I'm wrong on it, but it's like every player interview, every time Al Golden's interviewed, like they get a question of like, why'd you have those lapses on back-to-back drives? Why could you not take care of it on third and 18? Why'd you do this exotic blitz that gave up a garbage time touchdown? Why'd you have this busted coverage? I think this is the week where at home, we're now on a roll. We've had two great wins in a row. Um, this is our first time back home since the Cal game. I think that this Notre Dame defense shows up and has the best performance on either side of the ball this year. I'm not yet ready to say Tom Reese is going to go put up 30 points again. Um, although I know we did it two year, two, two weeks ago against North Carolina. So I, I would not be surprised at all if this is like 45 to 10, but I'm actually going to be really aggressive here and say 28 seven and our, it's completely lower scoring than expected. Our offense looks really good. Maybe they blow the doors off. Maybe they don't. I don't know. But I just haven't seen enough of Tom Reese in the red zone to have faith that we're going to go and, you know, convert on more of those opportunities. Um, so I've got – actually, I'm going to switch that and put in some more field goals. I'm going to say 27-7. to 7. Our defense completely dominates. The offense gets a lot of scoring opportunities but settles for a couple field goals. We comfortably cover the game's never close, but it's more of our defense winning this game than any other aspect on on either side of the ball yeah i think i think the complete performance as you mentioned we haven't had it yet and i think that's what's coming it just it seems like we're getting a little bit closer we haven't quite gotten there 
I, I, I just sense that we're getting very close to it. So I think we're on the same page with that. And then hopefully from an offensive side of things, I'm, I'm, I'm predicting a little more fireworks, a little bit more firepower. Um, I think I'm just starting to feel a little bit more encouraged about the offensive it's line. The game where runs up the middle works. <laughs> yeah. Hey, if, if that's working, then I mean, who knows? I, I feel like everything's on the table. We could, who knows? Maybe we'll put up 50 points, but, um, yeah, hopefully I, I'm thinking that this is hopefully a bit more of a, a statement game and, Look, I think we just keep pushing Stanford lower and lower. Uh, and as that's happening, Brett will have a big smile on his face. And frankly, that's good for the Notre Dame football program. Something we've talked about before in the past is a really strong Stanford program, even though they're a rival and tough rivalry games are fun. But that's not good for Notre Dame, just because if you look at the pool of recruits that Notre Dame has, it's a lot of academically minded players. And... Look at Stanford. They're one of the premier academic institutions in the country. So if they have a really strong football program, they can say, hey, we have one of the best academic programs in the country and you can play elite football, which is basically Notre Dame's pitch. If they're down, there's really no other option. If you're academically minded and you want to play top level football, you pretty much have to go to Notre Dame. And uh, that, that's, re- that's really the only option. So I'm hoping we kind of continue their decline. And if there are any recruits that are considering both schools and want high-end academics and football, we'll see that Notre Dame is, is truly the only option. It, one, is starting, it starts with respect and rivalry. I'm fortunate, and I played in one of the greatest, greatest rivalries in all sports, and, and that's the one thing that, that Coach Trustees always do. We respected the rivalry. Turning to our third segment, a bit of a fun one here, going through the Shamrock series. So we're an hour into recording. Sorry, folks, this is turning into a really long show. Uh, but I'm really excited about this one. We found some really fun stats on neutral site football games across college football's history. So I'm going to quickly rattle through the 11 games. We're then going to very quickly cover a few questions. And the last one will we'll provide a few more options with, with data of where could Notre Dame go next. So quickly rattling off, Notre Dame is now 11-0. and Um in the Shamrock series. It started in 2009. We blew out Washington State at the Alamo Dome. 2010, Army at Yankee Stadium. 2011, I was at this game, Maryland at FedEx. 2012, I was at this game, Miami at Soldier Field. Ironically, Al Golden was the head coach from Miami. So this was his second Shamrock series game. 2013, Arizona State at Jerry World. I was also at that game. That made three in a row. 2014, Purdue at Lucas Oil in Indianapolis. 2015, Boston College at Fenway. 2016, Army back at the Alamo Dome. 2018, Syracuse back at Yankee Stadium. 2021, Mike and I were at this game together. Wisconsin at Soldier Field, the Drew Pine coming out story. Um, we've had other neutral site games along the way. We've played Navy in Dublin. We've played them in San Diego. We've played in other NFL stadiums, but those were technically not Shamrock Series games. So the BYU Las Vegas Shamrock Series win moves us to 11-0. and Mike, of these 11 games, which one's been your favorite? So I'm gonna, I've been to two Shamrock Series games. I've been to 2012 Miami at Soldier Field and then I've been to 2021 Wisconsin at Soldier Field. Um, both, both were a ton of fun, I would say. So I think I have to defer to ones that I've actually been to because it's just a totally different experience if you're there in person. And so I thought Wisconsin at Soldier Field for me, at least for games that I've been to, uh, in person, that, that, I thought that that was a great experience. It was a pretty close game for a while and then Notre Dame just completely ran away with it in the second half. I remember there was a kickoff return for the touchdown, the end of the game. 
Uh, I think we had a pick six or something, and it ended up being a pretty big blowout. And then Wisconsin, they have that uh, the jump around. That's like a big a big thing that they do. So they were doing that there, and then we Notre Dame essentially we just uh, <laughs> we just like commandeered it and just started doing it ourselves. So that was that was pretty fun. We had we had great seats. Uh, we got to sit uh, midfield basically. It was like basically they're essentially like seats that Swarbrick would have through a charity auction. And since they were really nice seats, of course, Brett, you know, Brett was on his very best behavior as, as we all were. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to lie. Both soldier field Notre Dame games I have must be my, my kryptonite. Um, definitely had to rewatch the, the fourth quarter highlights from, from both those games to, to fill in some gaps, but we actually did have those seats directly from Jack Swarbrick, okay. which we won through the Declan Sullivan, um, charity uh event that that ann and i participate in and and, and we won two tickets in, in this charity or four tickets in this charity event so those were actually swarbrick seats um so so thank you jack a uh, friend of the show apparently yeah yeah no i mean and so that was i mean chicago I, the tailgating at soldier field has always been great that one was the only thing with that one was it was a little early so we didn't get as much tailgating time as, as we would have liked but beyond that i think if i and i'll answer this question a little bit different way a little bit differently if i had to pick a if I had to pick a Shamrock Series game that I think probably would have been the most fun had I intended it, I think it probably would have been BYU in Las Vegas. That just seemed... It looked like a blast. It seemed like it was just perfectly... The, the, the Shamrock Series gets a lot of flack at times, people say, and I think there's, there's some fair criticisms. Why don't we just have a home game? I think when the Shamrock Series is well executed, when you have a really interesting venue, I think, I think when you hype up the experience for the fans and it's an interesting opponent... I think it works really well as a home game away from home. And that's exactly what happened against BYU. Vegas, great, great location. Notre Dame, not a place that Notre Dame plays it very often. A bunch of Notre Dame fans flew in. Everyone had a lot of fun on the strip. And then BYU, interesting opponents, solid team, top 25. You have the whole religious school element. And then, again, and then these games have just been wins for us. We haven't lost a single one yet. So I think... When you execute execute it really well, it energizes the fan base. It gets the players excited to play in a cool venue, and then it also it helps from a recruiting standpoint. And like I said, we also get the get the Ws too. So I think I think when we when we execute it well, it seems like these Shamrock series actually uh, work work really well for the program. We haven't made this joke yet, but how ironic was it that the Catholics and the Mormons go to Las Vegas to to meet up? Um, I thought that was really interesting opponent yeah. selection, but it looked like an absolute blast out there. I'll answer the next question, least favorite, and I say this because I was there and absolutely had a blast, but thought as a game experience, it just kind of stunk. Um, it was the Maryland game at FedEx Stadium. Um, I very last minute got a ticket from my college roommate, Drew. Uh, we were in school at the time, and so I think the day before, like on Friday, we drove from South Bend all the way to D.C. Drew's from D.C., and we went to the game with his dad. Shout out Mr. Harper. Had a great time. The best part of that entire game, though, like the entire game day experience, was the cigar that Drew's dad got us. And we could have had that cigar anywhere. But the parking was weird, and it's out in the middle of nowhere. And, like, FedEx Stadium is kind of not a great NFL stadium. And Maryland, the best part of their football team that year was the uniforms. Um so it just like overall was kind of a, like, why are we here? Like, like Las Vegas, really cool. Yankee Stadium, Fenway, like Dublin, Soldier Field against Wisconsin. Like those are like really cool, iconic places or just interesting places. Even like Jerry World in, in Dallas when that, that was a relatively new stadium and that place is just huge. Those felt like really cool experiences and FedEx Field just 
didn't live up to that. Um, so I'm going to put that up there with my least favorite. Mike, next question. How should we read into this 11 and 0 record? I think a lot of people have a perception. We, we usually haven't played the most competitive of teams. We've played Army a couple times and Navy and some other games that actually we haven't played Navy in the Shamrock series. But generally speaking, are we 11 and 0 just because we schedule cupcakes for these neutral site games? How should we feel about the, the performances of that record? They're not, they're not cupcake teams. I mean, there have been a few games where the, it, it's worked out to where the team that we're playing so happens to be not great, but, We've played three ranked teams in, in that 11 game sample. And so that's Arizona State, Wisconsin, and, and BYU. And I think by and large, most of the teams that we play in, in the series are, I would say that they're at least solid. I mean, for instance, Miami in 2012, they weren't good. I don't think that they were very good that year, but at the time when we scheduled it, you, you'd think that Miami would have been at least solid. Teams like, you know, like Boston College, you would think that they would at least be okay. We're not, we're not scheduling Sunbelt teams or, or Mac teams. They're, please, please keep us away from the Sun Belt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it, it, they're teams that are – we're not using them for matchups against elite teams. And I think that makes sense because you want, you want to win these games. Where you want to have a good shot of winning these games when it's a home game away from home. But we're not playing total cupcakes. And in many cases, we're playing pretty solid teams. And I think, again, as I mentioned, I think the record speaks for itself. So I think – Again, you see people criticizing it and they're saying, well, is this optimal scheduling? Again, it's not, wouldn't it just be better to play it at home? But when you're at 11, 11 and 0, I mean, you can't really complain about that. We're clearly getting a lot of value from that from a win-loss standpoint. So I think, I, 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 I personally am, am fine with it. I don't think we're playing cupcakes. I think, you know, I wouldn't look at this 11 0 schedule and say it's something that, kind of is allowing us to just beat teams that we shouldn't beat it's we're, we're beating teams that we should beat and we're just kind of doing it in an interesting location but i do think the 11 11 and 0 is that that's and especially i think what makes it more impressive is that it's across so many different years right it's not like it's not like in each of these seasons we had a college football playoff team some of these some of these years we had a really good team uh, heck, in 2016, when we beat Army, that, we were pretty bad that year, actually. So e- even in some of these off years, we've been able to get these wins. So I think to me, that's that that's one of the more impressive aspects of this record is that is that we're undefeated over such a long period of time with with many different teams. So going to our last question, where would we like to see the Shamrock series go next, Mike? I've done a bunch of research on the international sites. So I'm going to reserve that one for me, but I'll start with you for domestic locations in the u.s um where would you like us where would you like notre dame to take this series next so the first one that came to mind and maybe i was thinking of the notre dame men's basketball how they they would play in the maui invitational but the first one that came to mind for me was hawaii i was thinking how much fun it would be and i also live on the west coast so if they did actually have one of these games in oahu if they had it in honolulu it, it wouldn't be too tough for me to actually get there but and don't forget charlie weiss broke uh, Notre Dame's 24-year bowl win spell by winning the Hawaii Bowl against Hawaii. Jimmy Clausen threw for 400-some yards and five touchdowns, had an absolute day. So we've done well in Hawaii. We, we did that once. That was a really fun bowl game to watch. I agree. We, we'd love to see that again. Yeah, Hawaii's been kind to us. You mentioned the Hawaii Bowl. Manti Teo, one of the most famous and most prolific players in Notre Dame history, came from Hawaii, and we've actually had some some good recruiting successes from the region. From the region, so I, I'm just picturing a just a perfect day of, of tailgating, perfect Hawaiian weather, maybe somewhere by the beach. Then you, you go to the game. Notre Dame has has a good win against an interesting opponent, and then after that, you should go down to Waikiki, hang out by the water, get some mai tais, and to me, that just seems like a picture perfect 
uh, day. And it's, it's one of those locations where I could just see just legions of Notre Dame fans just getting fired up for a trip like that. I feel, I feel like they would go there in mass. It's just, uh, Hawaii is one of those, Hawaii is one of those dream locations. Um, there, there are few places in the world that are mo- more beautiful for it. So for me, that's, that's top of the list for domestic locations. Other than that, I wouldn't say I have a clear number two. I think a place like Seattle would be interesting. Washington is, I think a lot of people sleep on, on, on Washington and Seattle as a, as a football area, but they do actually have some pretty good fans up there. Obviously the Seahawks in the NFL, uh, they have a very loyal fan base. And then Washington Huskies, which I don't think many, as many people appreciate in the Midwest or in the South, they actually have a pretty, pretty avid following too. So there's some good football fans there. Seattle's a really cool city. So I think- and I, it's called Lumen Field now. I forgot what it was originally called, but where the Seattle Seahawks play, that's a really cool stadium. It's, it's known as one of the louder NFL stadiums. So I think that would be pretty cool yeah. um, to, to, to see that program get lit for, for a Notre Dame game. I agree. And then the last one would maybe be a place like Foxborough, just because that's been such an iconic stadium, certainly since. And I'm not a Patriots fan, but I, I, I can acknowledge that that's just been an iconic uh, venue certainly since the Patriots, uh, certainly since Belichick took over the Patriots, I think that would just be a really cool place to to especially play. against a team like Boston College. Exactly, and and there are yeah. a lot of Notre Dame fans in Boston, a lot of Catholics there. Yep. So I, I, Notre Dame would would show up very well uh, in, in in terms of the number of fans at the game. So I, I think that that would be that would be a cool one too. I mean, I think like the MLB stadiums, I, MLB stadiums. I think we've hit most of the the iconic ones. We've played at Fenway. We've played at Yankee. Uh, let's see, was Yankee Stadium or was Yankee it? Stadium? Yep. Yeah, Yankee Stadium. So we've played at a lot. Of- and, and we played there in a bowl game. So we've we played there. Yeah, I was, yeah. I was trying to remember if it was just the bowl game or not. So we've played a lot of the iconic. I mean, I, let's see, have we played Wrigley? I'm trying to remember if we've done that before. I, we haven't. So we Wrigley's haven't. not been crossed off the list. Yeah. So Wrigley, Wrigley would be really interesting, and that's a close game. Certainly, that would be kind of be if you're talking about home games, home games away from home. Wrigley's right in our backyard. So I think that would be a really cool location to play it as well. But other than that, I think we've, we've knocked out a lot of the really interesting venues. So I think it's, as I said, Hawaii, that would be awesome. I think Seattle would be really cool. That would just be like an, that's an area that we don't really go to very often, the Pacific Northwest. And then certainly like a place like, uh, Foxborough and then Wrigley. Those would be, I would say those would be, uh, certainly high on my list of, of places for future Shamrock series games. And they're also in, in, uh, in interesting cities. So they're, they're places that are easy to get to a lot of stuff to do in the city. So it'd be a fun, fun, fun places to explore when the game's not going on. So I'm going to take the international side of this question, knowing that we're going to Dublin, Ireland next August for our opener against Navy, although technically not a Shamrock series game, but I went deep on what other countries have hosted American college football games and no surprise. Canada is top of the list with 29 college football games having been played in the country of at our uh, neighbors to the north. Most of those were in a bowl game that was played every year for a really long time in Toronto. Um, second on the list, this was shocking to me, second on the list was Japan, which has played 21 games, mostly from the 70s through the early 90s. Just one game since the early 90s is an Ivy League game in 2015, I believe, between Princeton and Yale, but don't quote me on that. Um, and it wasn't just that, like, they had, you know, random teams go over there. In, in that stretch, they had Nebraska, Wisconsin, Clemson, Houston, Oklahoma State, Texas Tech, USC, SMU, which was huge back in the day, Cal, Stanford, all played games in Japan. And most notably, Notre Dame blew out the Miami Hurricanes, the U, 
40 to 50, uh, sorry, 40 to 15 in 1979 in Japan. So I think that one would be really cool if, you know, getting that country back in the loop clearly historically was kind of a part of an annual college football tradition. Um, other countries, Ireland, we're going to again, they've hosted 10 games. They seem to kind of be doing a annual tradition now that they've started up. Um, interestingly, Cuba has hosted eight games, primarily exhibitions of American teams largely based in Texas playing against Havana University. Um, Australia's hosted four, um, including a couple just five or six years ago. Germany's hosted four. Three of those were exhibition games um, in West Germany during the Cold War, so they had some cool political implications. Three games are in Bermuda, two in China, two in Mexico. I think Mexico City would be a really interesting spot. Um, the NFL game now has, or the NFL has a game in Mexico City every year. Um, and then one game each in Austria, France, Italy, Tanzania in the Kilimanjaro Bowl in May of 2011 played between Drake and Pioneer University, which I believe is a Tanzanian university, um, was the first and only U.S. college football game to be played in Africa. And finally, there was one American college football game played in the United Kingdom. Of all of those that I think would be really interesting, I think playing Boston College in Rome outside the Vatican as the two Catholic FBS schools would be a really cool like we're going to Ireland because it's where we've got tradition and roots. I think going to Italy, playing into the Catholic tradition, um, both Notre Dame and St. Mary's have big study abroad programs. This was actually an idea that Anne, as we were talking about this, my wife, had the idea to go play in Italy. She also just really, really wants to go to Italy. She studied abroad in Rome and really wants to go back there. So Notre Dame football would be a great excuse. So if I had my pick of somewhere internationally i think mexico city would be really cool and i think italy would be really cool of course dublin is going to be awesome we're planning to make the trip next year um if if travel plans align and so that that's my pick on international i agree seattle foxborough and wrigley all seem really cool domestically but shamrock series becoming a really cool tradition kind of part of the notre dame um program and recruiting story and really our fan base to, to see different parts of the country in, in these neutral site games is really neat. I'd love to see it expand more internationally um, over time. Yeah, I agree with all that. I think a game in Rome against Boston College, yeah, that would, that would, that, there's no denying. I'd show up. Yeah, there's no denying that that would be a really cool experience. Um, instead of getting beer in the stadium, maybe you get some red, maybe you get some red sheesh. Red sheesh, That's yeah. That's not get, what they get, get some. Get some Cabernet flowing. Yeah, I, the, the yeah the Italians probably wouldn't appreciate me calling it sheesh, but uh, you know, <laughs> it's uh, you know you got to call it you got to call it what it is. Exactly. All right, with that, the show's a wrap. Apologies, folks, for the long one. We'll do better next time and, and try to keep it close to our, our mark. But for those of our fans still listening, thank you for hanging with us. Gyrish beat Cardinal. Gyrish. <laughs>